0: And welcome to each of you and happy Memorial Day weekend. I hope that this weekend you are going to have some time off, maybe an opportunity to rest. Um, And this morning we're going to return to the book of Nehemiah. So we're going to finish out this morning this incredible story that I wish we had more time to unpack, but that we're kind of skimming the top. And so I want to ask if you have a copy of God's word in some form. I'd love for you to please join us in the book of, of Nehemiah. You know, Nehemiah is a book about building, it is a book about a project that was taking place. As we looked at last week, God places this burden on Nehemiah's heart to return to Jerusalem and to rebuild literally, rebuild a city, a city that was broken. You know, this month, actually, four years ago, in May of 2010, God placed a vision on our hearts to build as well. When he called us to plant this church that would become the venue church, and to see the situation of this city that we live in, broken, neglected, often abandoned and forgotten, and to see God bring life back through planting a faith family here that is unified around the common goal. Of rebuilding a city spiritually, making much of Jesus throughout this downtown area and beyond. And so, last week, I set up for what I that I want us to glean from Nehemiah, you know, because we're only just scratching the surface on the the lessons that we could learn through this incredible story about that Nehemiah shares. But what I hope that we will glean are common characteristics that we people who are rebuilding a city. People who are passionate about seeing lives which are broken and, and forgotten, seeing them restored. And so this morning as we continue to walk through this narrative, I pray that you and I both will, will see principles of what a city builder looks like and that we'll kind of lay those principles on top of our life and see the misalignment and pray that God will align our lives to where, as, to where we reflect a person that he is calling us to be as we look to rebuild In this city. And as I was sitting there worshiping, as Josie was leading us, and I was just listening to the words and reflecting on the words, I began to think, I was like, you know, one thing I want us to do this morning is to be careful that this story and the study through Nehemiah does not become a study where it's Nehemiah centered, to where we look at the life of Nehemiah and say, Nehemiah was a swell guy and he did some great things. And nor do I want this to be about specifically the city, because neither Nehemiah's account. Or of who he was as a person and the things we learned from his leadership, nor the city that was being restored is the central focus of that passage. Because what we're going to see is that God and his glory was the central motivation behind both Nehemiah's heart for the people and the rebuilding of the city of Jerusalem. And so I want to I just read this morning a passage of Scripture to remind us Really quickly from psalm forty seven and this is where the people of israel this is where uh, this is their cry, this is their prayer to, to to God, and so this morning, as we as we read this and we we're reminded of who God is and the centrality of him, I want to ask, as I read this passage that you stand with me and as I read this about the Lord that we 're centering on this morning. listen to what the the choirmaster says. Over, about this nation. He says, Clap your hands, all peoples. Shout to God with loud songs of joy, for the Lord, the Most High, is to be feared. He is a great king over all the earth. He subdued peoples under us. This is the nation talking. And nations under our feet. He chose our heritage for us the pride of Jacob, whom he loves. And God has gone up with a shout. The Lord with the sound of a trumpet. So sing praises to God. Sing praises. Sing praises to our king. Sing praises. For God is the king of all the earth. So sing praises with a psalm. God reigns over the nations. God sits on his holy throne. And the princes of the people gather as the people of the God of Abraham. For the shields of the earth belong to God. And he is highly exalted. And that prayer from the people of Israel is the prayer that should ring into our hearts today as we look, look at this account. And so as we begin, I want to ask as we stand in reverence to who God is, I want to pray that God will allow us to see the beauty of who he is this morning through this story that we will look at. So if you will join me. Father, it is our joy and privilege to come this morning to worship you. God, my prayers as your people stand in reverence of you and the description of you and your word. Father, just as this Passage from a psalmist described who you are, Father, and and their hearts were motivated to worship. God, this morning, as we take your word from Nehemiah and as we unpack it, God, may our hearts not be warmed by a strategy of a man, by the compassion of a man, may our hearts not just strictly be warmed warmed by the people who, who work together and strive together and, and had rich community, God. But may all of this point us to where we literally and spiritually rise to our feet, to where we worship you for who you are. Because you are still the God over all nations. You are still the king of the all nations. You still sit on your throne and you still rule and you still are sovereign, God. And we are your people that you have chosen, God, a people that you have purified for your own possession, for your own glory, to will and to work for your own good pleasure. And so God, may this morning, as we unpack this, may that be the word that rings in our ears this morning, the glory of your name. And that may, may that be the motivation of our hearts. And that's our prayer. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. You can be seated. So Nehemiah. Now, for those of you who weren't here last week, I want to just take a quick moment to bring you up to speed on what is taking place, both for the city of Jerusalem and the life of Nehemiah, but also for the nation of Israel as a whole. You know, after Solomon's reign, we looked last week how the nation of Israel, God's chosen people, they had begged for a king, even though they were not a nation who was to be governed by a king, they wanted a king because everybody else had a king. And God graciously gave them what they wanted. And we talked about how last week it was an absolute train wreck for their nation. The kings were an absolute disaster for the large in part. And eventually, the nation of Israel split into two kingdoms. You had the northern kingdom and you had the southern kingdom. So they were split up, and they were exiles across the ancient world. They had been dominated, and they had been kind of scattered around. And so the people who had been given a land that was their promised land had rebelled, and now they were literally scattered like exiles across a nation which was their heritage, which God had promised to them. And the Babylonians have swept in and, and taken out one of, the, one of the nations, and the Assyrians had taken out the other. And then the Babylonians had to conquer the Assyrians. And now Persia has risen up, and Persia has dominated the whole region. And so now the king of Persia is calling the shots here. But something quite unique happens that we looked at in Second Chronicles last week. And that is the Spirit of God leads the, one of the Persian kings, Cyrus. He leads him to allow at least a portion of the nation of Israel to go back to Jerusalem and to rebuild the city. And so we get to this book of Ezra and Nehemiah, which somewhat runs simultaneously, where Ezra is going to focus mostly on how the Israelites would restore the law, how they would recover the reverence to God's teaching for them. And then Nehemiah focuses more on how they would recover the walls, how would they literally rebuild this city. And so Ezra will spend a good bit of the time talking about how the nation would be led back to a proper worship of God, a proper submission to God, where God was the central. They would spend most of their time on that. Nehemiah would talk to how they would literally restore the people, bring the walls back up, make a place that could be inhabited again by the people of Israel. Now Nehemiah, as we looked at last week, is quite a little bit of a, a rarity for the nation of Israel. Because Nehemiah, who is an Israelite, a foreigner, he has done quite well for himself. He is, despite being this foreigner in Persia, he has risen to be one of the most trusted servants of the king of Persia. Chapter 1 ended last week by us looking at Nehemiah saying that he was the cupbearer to the king. So his job, as we looked at last week, was to drink the wine that was being offered to the king what he did for a living. Now, you may say, well, what does that make him such an inner circle servant? Well, during those days, there wasn't a lot of weapons of mass destruction to take out a king. And so, the way to assassinate a king would be to poison them. So, Nehemiah, he would take the cup of fine wine and would drink it and make sure it was safe before he offered it to the king. It was a very trusted position. So, Nehemiah, large in part for them in that nation, had a dream job. And he is literally sitting by the king drinking fine wine all day i guess it's a dream job until the day that someone did try to poison the king and then then it wasn't quite such a good day right it'd be his last day on the job as cupbearer but now nehemiah encounters some guests from his nation of judah 800 miles away and these people are here and nehemiah his mind is still with his people and one of the two divided kingdoms of israel was judah and they were there and he asked them how are things going for the people How are things going for our nation? And the news to him is not good because the city walls are broken down. Its gates have been burned by fire. They are literally defenseless as a city. And Nehemiah, some 800 miles away, living in this incredible situation, he is absolutely wrecked by the news of his kingdom and his people. Now, in his profession, this was not a good thing to be burdened and weeping and sad for anything, because you see, in the presence of the king during that time, anyone who came before the king and appeared to be sad and unhappy could be punished by death by the king. Because no one should be in the presence of the king and be, un- be unhappy. So Nehemiah is, can't control himself. He is burdened for his people, and the king of Persia sees that Nehemiah is very distraught, and he asked him. Why are you sad? And Nehemiah discloses in in this book that he was very much afraid. He was very much afraid. He he had no idea what the king was about to do. He knew the penalty that could be imposed for being a person sad before the king, especially in his role. But the king found favor and asked him what he wanted, what, what he wanted to do. How long would you be gone? What would you need? And Nehemiah tells him and Nehemiah is then sent back to Jerusalem and he returns and he inspects the walls. He does this at night because according to the account, he already had opposition from the very beginning. From the very beginning, there were people who, there were these two individuals we meet, Sambalit and Tobia, who, who opposed anyone who was looking to restore favor to the people of Israel. And Nehemiah concludes in chapter two, verse 17, what must be done when he says this. Chapter two, verse 17, he says, you see the trouble that we are in how Jerusalem lies in ruin with its gates burned. So come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good and also of the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, let us rise up and build. And so they strengthened their hands for the good work. And as the work began, we see in chapter 3 how something quite interesting begins to happen. The list of builders that are described have great significance to our story. It wasn't a listing of skilled and licensed contractors and builders with wealth of knowledge of rebuilding a city and a wall. There were no planners. There, were no, there was no one there who understood what was taking place. There were merchants, and there were Levites, and there were goldsmiths. There were perfume makers. There were people all working together, unified, for the goal of restoring the city. Well, Sambalit and Tobiah saw the progress and they began to rally their troops together in preparation to come and to oppose the Israelites. And so we ended last week with Nehemiah's plan in chapter 4 to prepare to face the opposition that would come upon them. And through this first part, we looked at three characteristics of a city builder. We looked at three characteristics. I originally said there were six, but I found a seventh. So you get four today, okay? So so if if you're a note taker, change it to seven characteristics of a city builder. Last week, we looked at this. We said a city builder, someone who is, in our case, spiritually speaking, we talked about how we believe the word from Nehemiah is not just descriptive about a historical event, but it's prescriptive about characteristics that you and I should have. And so we talked about last week that, first of all, people that are city builders are people of compassion. Nehemiah wept for his people. If we're gonna see a sustainable desire to see change in our city and beyond, we must be driven and motivated by a compassion to see God restore his name among the brokenness of our people. We need hearts that hurt for things, for those who are hurt. We need a heart that is broken for the things that broke the heart of God. And we talked about seeing both restoration literally and spiritually in our city. So were, we're people of compassion, we're people that pray and fast. Before Nehemiah did anything, he prayed. In the presence of the king, the king says, what do you need, Nehemiah? And he says, I prayed before he even even went into anything. Nehemiah spent, I think we talked last week that Nehemiah spent four months praying, and it only took about 52 days to rebuild the wall. So his sensitivity to praying and fasting was supreme compared to the amount of energy he exerted physically to rebuild the wall. We talked about how you need to, we need to corporately and individually fast and pray for God to move through our city. And then we ended by talking about that city builders are people with proper perspective. That Nehemiah had a proper view of God. He had a proper view of God and his power and his perfection. He realized, he said, God, you are, you are a covenant-keeping God. But he goes on, and secondly, we saw that he had a proper view of himself. Because Nehemiah confessed and repented and prayed on behalf of his people. So city builders will have a heart of repentance. So that's where I want us to pick the story up today in Nehemiah chapter four. And we're gonna begin with verse one. So when Sambalit and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the, the Ashdodites heard that the repairing of the walls was going forward, this is verse seven, and that the breaches were beginning to close, they were very angry. Verse 8, and they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. And we prayed to our God and set a guard as a protection against them day and night. In Judah, it was said, the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There's too much rubble. By ourselves, we will not be able to rebuild the wall. And our enemies said, they will not know or see till we come among them and kill them and stop the work. At that time, the Jews who lived near them came from all directions and said to us ten times, you must return to us. So in the lowest parts of the space between the wall and open places, I stationed the people by their clans with their swords, their spears, and their bows. And I looked and arose and said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. When our enemies heard that it was known to us and that God had frustrated their plan, we all returned to the wall, each to his work. And from that day on, half of my servants worked on construction and half held the spears, shields, bows, and coats of mail. And the leaders stood behind the whole house of Judah who were rebuilding, who were building on the wall. Those who carried the burdens were loaded in such a way that each labored on the work with one hand and held his weapon with the other. Verse 18. And each of the builders had his sword strapped at his side while, he'll be, while he built. The man who sounded the trumpet was beside me. And I said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, the work is great and widely spread and we are separated on the wall far from one another. In the place where you hear the sound of the trumpet rally to us there and our God will fight for us. And so we labored at the work and half of them held the spears from the break of dawn until the stars came out. I also said to the people at that time, let every man and his servant pass the night within Jerusalem, that they may be a guard for us by night and may labor by day. So neither I, nor my brothers, nor my servants, nor the men of the guard who follow me. None of us took off our clothes. Each kept his weapon at his right hand. So Nehemiah continues the work. He perseveres. They keep pushing on. In, in, fight of, in, in light of opposition, they didn't stop. They just prepared themselves, and they continue the work. That God had called them to. Well, then in chapter 5, we see the compassion of Nehemiah once again. Because in the nation of Israel, there, the people who were working, there were poor among them, who had been working and, and, and were having to mortgage their fields and mortgage their vineyards. They were having to, to put it up as collateral, and their and the, the people from their own nation were, were charging them interest on it. And Nehemiah tells them that what they're doing was not good. They're forcing their own people into slavery. And so scriptures tell us that Nehemiah was very angry. And he told them to return their property and start, stop charging them interest. And the people would agree and do as Nehemiah said. And then we get to chapter 6 and we see the project which was birthed in the heart of Nehemiah. We see it come to completion. Look in chapter 6 verse 15. It says, so the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month in 52 days. And when all enemies heard of it, all the nations around us were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem. For they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of God. So through the building of the city, greater things were happening than just the restoration of a physical city. But people were once again beginning to fear the God of Israel because they had seen that this was a work that had been accomplished with the help of God. So now the exiles are returning to the city. It's a safe place. Life is there again. And people, there's a listing of the people who returned and who came back to inhabit the city. And then we get to chapter 8. And Ezra, the scribe, is told to go and to bring the book of the law. They look for the truth from God that had been given to Moses, been neglected for generations. And they say, go get the scroll. And look in chapter 8, verse 1, and read along with me. And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses, that the Lord had commanded Israel. People who had rebelled, who were, in, who were exiles, and now restored. And they say, go get the law. Verse 2, so Ezra the priest. The next verse lists several who were with him. And in verse five, it says, Ezra opened the book. He opened the book in the sight of all the people for he was above all the people, literally. And as he opened it, all the people stood. As he opened the book, all the people stood. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, amen, amen. Lifting up their hands and they bowed their heads and they worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. And there were many there as the list you can see. They helped the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places. Then in verse 8, they read from, they read from the book from the law of God clearly and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra, the priest, and the scribe, and the Levites, who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. Because look at this. All the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Verse 10. Then he said to them, Go your way, eat the fat, drink sweet wine, and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready, for this day is holy to our Lord. And do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is holy. Is your strength, And so the Levites calmed all the people saying, be quiet for this day is holy, do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions and to make great rejoicing because they had understood the words that were declared to them. The disclosure of the word of God to the people of Israel had pushed them to a holy reverence to where they stood at the reading of the word. There's no instructional things. They said, go get the book of the law, And Ezra goes up onto the platform that was instructed for that. And as he opened the book, the people rose in anticipation. A broken people who had rebelled against the holy God had now seen his hand work as he used their hands to rebuild a city. Who then knew that God was covenant keeping to their nation. And it says that as they stood, they wept at the truth of God's word that was revealed to them. I think about the holiness of God, but then also about the unholiness of who they were. There was proper perspective restored. But then in chapter 9, we see the people respond to the truth of God's word through repentance. Look in verse 1 of chapter 9. Now, on the 24th day of this month, the people of Israel were fasting. They were assembled with fasting and in sackcloth and with earth on their heads. And the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. And they stood up in their place and they read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day. And for another quarter of it, they made confession and they worshiped the Lord their God. Wow. The people of Israel would then covenant. They would come into another covenant with God about what they were going to do. In light of what they had been shown. And then the restoration of this city was now complete. So as we consider this story, I want to continue by pulling out some characteristics of city builders. And there's a fourth one that I think we find from this city, from this story. That's that first of all, people who are city builders are people who are prepared for opposition, So we talked last week, there are people with proper perspective, people that pray and fast. We looked at those. There are people that have a compassion. And fourthly, we have to be a people who are prepared for opposition. From the very beginning of Nehemiah's leadership, he faced opposition. In chapter 2, those two guys who kept showing up were greatly displeased at what was going on. It drove them crazy for somebody to be looking out for the welfare of Israel. They, didn't even, they, even, they even tried to discourage Nehemiah from doing the things that he was doing because at the end of that chapter, they say, What are you doing, Nehemiah? Are you trying to rebel against the king? You're going to commit treason? Is that what you're trying to do here? You're surely punishable by death. And I can hear them. Are you sure you want to do that, Nehemiah? Are you nuts? So they organized this army to kind of hit the Israelites with a sneak attack and disrupt their plans. But I believe that not only did they face physical opposition, but they faced opposition from their own nation. In chapter 4, we see that it was throughout, throughout Israel, people were saying that this work is too great. There's too much rubble. The workers are getting tired. The Jews actually said, came to Nehemiah ten times and said, you've got to return to us, Nehemiah. But what does Nehemiah do? He perseveres. He presses on despite the opposition. But Nehemiah also knew that the battle that he was engaged in and the opposition he was facing was more than just internal and external opposition from his own people. He recognized that this battle was also spiritual. In verse 8, Sambilit and Tobiah are plotting to come against the nation of Israel instead of drawing up a strategic military plan first, says Nehemiah prays. So before he got this plan together to fight against this opposition, he says, Nehemiah, he prayed. Verse 9, he says, we pray to our God and set a guard as a protection against them day and night. He prayed. He realized there was a spiritual battle taking place here as well. Church, as we work as city builders in this city seeking restoration, we will face opposition. For doing it right, we will. There will be much discouragement. There will be many days where we will see no fruit. There will be days where we will see more decline in our city than improvement. There will be days where it'd be easy to face the discouragement and the opposition that you can't, this will never happen. The city will never be restored. People are just too far, too gone. And it'd be easy for us to be able to push back and to say, yeah, maybe they're right. But hear me this morning, city builders persevere despite opposition. Look at Nehemiah, they fought on, they pressed on, they gave all they had to allow God to use them to rebuild this city. May I encourage you this morning that our work in this city that has the nations in our sight is a marathon and not a sprint. We live in a culture of instant gratification. We live in a culture that we ought to get something right then. You know, I don't eat a lot of fast food, but I've been you know the times I go to there lately. I mean, it's just like they're trying to get as fast as they can get. You know, I walk up to the counter and I'll be like, oh, I'll have a number two. Oh, there it is. Okay, you know, it, it's it's everything's instant. I want it like this. Don't make me wait in line. Even in a drive-thru, we pick, why, why, you know, that's one of the reasons I pick Chick-fil-A because they're so stinking fast in the drive-thru. i got to be moving, you know. I can't have time to wait two minutes for my meal. I need it right when I need it. We live in a culture of instant gratification. And when things don't happen right away, the tendency is to give up and abandon and lose zeal for what it is that we are wanting to do, especially in the face of opposition. The work is difficult. The work is trying it's discouraging at times, but restoration will come despite opposition when we persevere and continue. Consider this verse in Galatians chapter 6, verse 9. and Let us not, Paul tells the church in Galatians, he says, Let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give For the people of Israel, they faced opposition. We too, as we work, it's gonna be easy to see that often it feels as if the darkness is overshadowing the light. But we must trust that God is at work. In your pursuit of Christ, at some point in your own personal life, at some point you are following his divine purposes for your life. If you're attempting to push back the darkness in any given area, at some point you will face opposition, a literal opposition opposition. In your own personal walk, there will be people who will not like what you have been called to give your life to. You're going to do what? Don't you know that's dangerous? Why would you do that? You're going to reach out to who? But they're not like us. You know, why would you, you want to do that? You're going to move Where? To a country that we can't even pronounce? That's not safe. Why can't you just do what's normal and safe? But as you seek to serve God, sometimes his calling on your life is gonna go in a direction that seems counterculture to the American dream and you're gonna face opposition. When you are swimming upstream, you will face pushback. So did Nehemiah. But he kept on persevering, and we must do the same. He set people up as guards with their swords and their trowels, and they kept going with the work. But there's an interesting thing that happens because Nehemiah knew there was a greater opposition taking place because before putting guards in place, he prayed. I think this is significant for us because not only will you and I face literal opposition, but we must be prepared to face spiritual opposition as God's people. As you seek to follow God's vision for your life, to be a city builder, to work in the hard neighborhoods, to be about repairing the spiritual walls, to begin sharing the gospel with lost friends, to begin to work diligently, to push back the darkness, you will face spiritual opposition. If you are a believer in scripture, we believe that there are real dark spiritual forces that are working in opposition to you. I want you hear these verses. Ephesians chapter 6 verse 12. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. There is a battle going on. 1 Peter chapter 5 verse 8. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, is like a roaring lion, He walketh about seeking whom he may devour. This does not sound, this is not a passive kitty cat who wants to try to trip you up. This is an aggressive lion who is roaming seeking who he may devour. There is a spiritual battle that we are engaged in. The Bible tells us that these demonic forces only have one goal in mind, and that is to kill and to steal and to destroy. Satan does not want to see people broken out of bondage. He does not want to see people rescued. He does not want to see the kingdom of God advance and the news of Jesus spread. He doesn't want those things. He's, in a, he's opposed to those things and he wants to oppress us with those things. But let me re- remind you this morning of the good news church and that is that Jesus is king and Satan is not. Jesus is king. And Satan is not. In the book of Revelation, I love in chapter one, when John realizes that he is in the presence of God, scripture says he falls at his feet as though he is dead. But it says that God laid his right hand on him and he said this. He said, fear not, for I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and Hades. Jesus is the king and Satan is not. You and I can trust as we push into the darkness, though it may often overwhelm us and oppose us, we can take heart because Jesus is victorious. So as we seek to live life by the Spirit, we will face spiritual opposition, but know that God is victorious. For some of you in this room, you may be fighting a serious spiritual battle of oppression and you feel as if the enemy is winning proclaim the news of Jesus that he is victorious. Jesus has always been victorious over the evil one. So a people that are city builders are people that are prepared for opposition. But there's a second thing, and that is, uh, there's a fifth thing, whatever we're on. There are people that are prepared to play a part. We all have a part to play. City builders all have a part to play. It's easy to look at chapter Three and, and skim through it, wondering why the names and the occupations of these builders are listed. There's great significance. We're talking about rebuilding a wall around a city. And I don't know much about perfume makers and their building ability, but I would say he probably didn't bring a lot to the table by way of building. But what does he do? And he says, "They don't say, "Make everybody smell good." He says, "Get right here." We're going to work together to restore this wall. Merchants who sold goods are say, where, where do we go? Where do we fall in? Oh, you take this gate. People are just shoulder to shoulder working together. Priests, they're all working together. And Nehemiah mentions that they are as one laboring to rebuild the wall. We all have a part to play. Yeah, but... I don't have a lot of gifts and talents. I'm just going to leave that to the gifted and talented folks. Listen to me. Let me read this from Romans chapter 12, verses 4 through 6. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ. And we are individually members one of another, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. So let us use them. The grace that is shown to you, God extends that and he gifts you in certain ways. And you are to bring that giftedness to be a part of the body of Christ to help rebuild this spiritual city that we are in the process of working in. Just as Nehemiah needed all hands on deck to accomplish the task before them, we need you. We need your gifts and your talents. We need you. And we need your investment and we need your willingness. And we need your time and your energy and your money and your gifts and your it, the way God's wired you, we need you to invest yourself because we are incomplete without it. Now, this is interesting. This is all about God's design because guess what? These were not just people that through their unification were able to rebuild this city because people from the outside were even able to tell that this was a work that God had to have a hand in. These guys could not have rebuilt the city. There's too much rubble and they do it in 52 days. They knew that God is at work. And so as we look to restore this city, God has to do the work, but he needs your willingness. He used the people who willingly gave of themselves, who brought not much to the table, but he used them. And it's part of God's design that we, the church, are complete when we all offer our gifts and talents to be used by him. If we're going to see a city rebuilt and broken things restored, we need your investment. We all have a part to play. We all have a brick that needs laying Now, for many of you, you are exhausted. Many of you are just exhausted, spiritually speaking. You've been burned. You need to heal. You You just feel like, I just need to be restored. I'm burnt out. And thank God for allowing his church to be a place that is an encouragement and is a place of healing, It is a place of nurturing, and a place for care to take place. If you need a place to rest and to heal, And I pray that God will allow you to do that through His body. But on the other hand, the good news is the goal of healing is to get out of the hospital. It's eventually okay to get out of the hospital. You know, God's spirit is is inside of you, so He's not calling you to labor on your own strength. He's not saying that by getting back in the game, I've got to get back into that rat race where I'm burnt out again. He's not asking you to come back and to to be yoked to something that is heavy. But he says, I want you to be yoked to me and take up my yoke because it is light and my burden is easy and you will find rest for your soul. That's the yoke of Jesus. That's the yoke of Jesus. If you, if you take it up, it's heavy. He provides, it's light. He provides rest for your soul. So we're saying to, to get back into the game, we're saying take back on the proper yoke, the one that weighed you down, lay it aside and take up Jesus' yoke and offer what he has wired you with for the good of the church and the glory of God and the rebuilding of a city. So I want you to hear me this morning. Resting in Christ is what he calls us to, but it is not apathy. To rest in Christ is not apathetic. It is not complacency. It is resting in what he has already attained for you and being driven to diligently pray to be used by him. I find it quite interesting that in in chapter 3, as they're preparing the walls, there's a group of people called the Tokoites. And it says, they repaired the wall, but their nobles would not stoop to serve. For some of you this morning, the challenge from God's word is that it's time to get in the game. It's time to stop attending, and it's time to start being the church. It's time to stoop and get your hands dirty. Time to, time to, time to serve in the same fashion that Jesus did. I have a fear that for many, many of our churches today, we are the disciples who are sitting around the table with filthy feet, arguing on points of theology, and we have failed to see that Jesus has slipped away from the table and has put a towel around him and is washing our nasty feet. May you and I be willing to take the posture of a servant and serve. Number six, and I've got to move. Got to, there are people that persevere in the word. I love Nehemiah 8. Ezra the priest prepares to read, and people stand in anticipation on their feet. But what's interesting is that this anticipation leads them to a holy reverence before God. Truth leading to humility. I ask you, what is your goal for studying God's word? Is it knowledge? Is it theology? Is it obligation? Church, the, the truth of God's word, no matter where we find ourselves, should lead us to a response. We must not worship theology. We must not worship the Bible. But we must worship the God of the Bible. You and I must also not approach God's word apathetically, but rather in a way that leads us to fall before our faces before him in repentance. The people of Israel were weeping before God, but the glory of the God behind the Bible is that he meets our repentance with much grace because Nehemiah instructs him and says, look, this day is holy. You don't have to weep. Go your way, eat. And why? Because he says, do not be grieved for the joy of the Lord is your strength. May you and I persevere in the word. And finally, city builders press into his grace. That's the response. After reading of God's word in chapter eight, the people respond in chapter nine in repentance. And in verse 17, they're confessing the disobedience of their nation. And they say these words. They say, listen, our people have rebelled and we've been ridiculous before you. And and he says, but you are a God that is ready to forgive. You are gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. God is a God of grace. We need his grace. So our challenge this morning is, will we be a people driven by compassion, people that pray and fast, people that maintain a proper perspective, people that are prepared for opposition, and people who persevere in the word, people who press into his grace, and we be that kind of city builder. Well, the story ends the wall has now been completed and it ends in chapter 12 as they dedicate the wall of Jerusalem. They have this big worship service and there's choirs who give thanks and, and people are all worshiping together. They've, they see the city restored in verse 40, both choirs that are there. They give thanks to God and they worship Verse 43 says, They offered great sacrifices that day and they rejoiced, for God had made them rejoice with great joy. The women and children also rejoiced. And it says, I love this, it ends by saying, And the joy of Jerusalem was heard from far away. The city had now been restored. The building of the wall began with compassion to see God's name made great, and it ends in worship. That's our goal, church. We're not just looking to build a church or just to restore a city so that life is better. We're doing it because we desire to see God worship. John Piper said it best when he said, missions exist because worship doesn't. Our goal is to see God worshiped from every nation. So I pray that we will be city builders so that the glory of the Lord will be seen by his people. We're ushering in the kingdom. And the question is, will you join in? Matthew twenty four fourteen and I'll end with this verse, says this. As we are looking to build this city, may we be reminded that the gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. That's what we're working towards. So may we join in. Will you pray with me?